1: Hi everybody, welcome to Falling
0: Through the Cracks. Joining
1: me today from Toronto is Reza Deeper. She's a professor and her current research centres on Canadian health policy. We're discussing her book, Treating Healthcare, how the Canadian system works and how it could work better. Reza, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, So, um, what
2: inspired you to put this book together? Actually, I was asked to write the book by University of Toronto Press. They have something called an Insight Series, which is trying to give... Um, information about topics to intelligent general readers that don't necessarily have a background in it. And I have a book called Case Studies in Canadian Health Policy and Management that was done with the students who take my course. And there's an intro chapter in it um, which sort of gives a whole bunch of concepts. And it had been going over well enough that U of T Press asked if I would be willing to write a book for the Insight Series.
1: So, um, it, you know, it, it seems like a, a pretty important topic to me, especially since I talk about health and, and that kind of thing. I mean, um, the Canadian healthcare system is always a topic of conversation in Canada. Um, yeah. You know, is, it, is it good? Does it need work? Um, how does it work? That kind of thing. So, um, I think we'll just start with um, what
2: exactly is health policy? What does that mean? Well, it depends on who you are and how wide you want to get on it. Because if you get into things like determinants of health and the things that help keep you healthy, uh, that's everything. It's it, the air you breathe, you know, whether you're wearing seatbelts, the water you drink, the food you eat, your social supports. So you could go everything from health just being sickness care and taking care of you when you get sick to a whole look about how do you keep you healthy in the first place. So, it depends on who you're talking to in terms of what you're going to call part of health care.
1: well, and and I, I thought it was interesting that you brought up that our health care system really is sickness care. Um, can you just tell yeah. us what what the difference would be between um, something that is isn't sickness care and what sickness care really means in in your in your book?
2: Yeah, well, I think what I was trying to do in the book is I was not trying to write an advocacy piece. I was trying to give information. One of the things that I've, I've been teaching here for longer than I want to think, but one of the, the things that was always clear as I said, I can't tell you what you should want. What I can do as a scholar is try to help say whether particular things wor- will or won't work to take you there. So if you take a look at the population, most of the health care expenditures are for a very small number of really sick people. because most of us fortunately, don't need a lot of health care, don't you know, and it, as long as you're pretty healthy, it's not an issue. But if you're unlucky enough to get cancer or get some awful condition, then all of a sudden it can become very expensive. So what the sickness care is is what happens when you actually get sick. And then there's a whole lot of other things about how did you keep you from getting sick in the first place, if that's possible.
1: Well, and and there seems to be less focus on that from from my point of view, and I I don't know if that's the um, the people out there are just not um, interested, or if or if it's not available to us. But I I feel like a lot of people are using the system only when they're sick. So you know, the some people yeah. tell me, you know, I haven't been to my doctor in five years, and all of a sudden I have to go all the time, and um, you know, even the follow up visits are are important when you feel well, um, but it seems like that doesn't happen all
2: the time. Well, it depends. If you've got a good family doctor, um, you know, it's, it's a balancing act. You don't want to get care you don't need. You know, you don't need to go to the doctor just to go to the doctor. Yes. So things like, okay, let's make sure your blood pressure is okay, let's make sure other things. But we have all kinds of, of things, but public health is a key piece of the picture, one of the things they say in public health is if it's successful, it's invisible. I mean, look at the few examples we've had of people getting poisoned by uh, polluted water. Mm -hmm. And as long as the water is properly treated and cared for, this doesn't become an issue. So, you know, one of the cases in my casebook is Walkerton, or you have Flint, Michigan, or you have other things like that, where all of a sudden you're getting sick because people haven't been pro- taking proper care of the water. But if it's done right, we don't notice that. Uh, same thing sure. with air quality. Uh, there are certainly places where you have a lot of problems because the air is so polluted that you have problems breathing it. Most of the time, this isn't an issue. So, you know, it's not that you don't ta- pay attention to it. If we're, uh, same thing uh, if you're homeless. You're clearly going to have a lot more problems than if you've got a roof over your head and you have meals to eat. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, there's all kinds of things we take a look at that are not sickness care, that are preventive, but they're not part of the health care system. So
1: what what would be health care then?
2: Well, healthcare is the sorts of things given by people who are called healthcare workers. You know, by doctors, nurses, you know, social workers, physiotherapists in hospitals, in, in uh, clinics, doctors' offices. That's the part that's healthcare, and it's extremely important, particularly if you're unlucky enough to be sick. But it's not the whole picture.
1: So, so what's the the whole picture?
2: Well, the whole picture is basically what our society looks like, yeah. So it's like, how, how, do we, how do we keep people healthier? And there's all kinds of things. You know, if you take a look at the World Health uh, um, Organization's definition of health, it's a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. So, you know, did your hockey team win a big, big game? Was that going to make you healthier? Uh, I don't think most people would say hockey players count as part of the healthcare system.
1: So, well, that's an interesting um, way to put it, though, because the, the emphasis isn't yeah. always on um, that that entire definition. I mean, most people just look at their their physical well-being or are they in pain, or are they tired, um, yeah. e- et cetera, and, and they're not looking at the social aspect. Um, and there isn't a lot of emphasis on that either. We're kind of, you know... Um, left to our own devices in that, which does make sense in a way, but also if that's part of healthcare care, um, or, well, or part of our health, I mean, not part of healthcare, care, um, yeah. you know, it, something might it need to shift. It depends. We're not yeah. left to
2: our own devices about getting clean water or having the air quality decent. No, that's so f- true. for some things we're left to our own devices, but for a lot of things, no, it, we are working together as a society.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: What about educating kids, you know, having reasonable schools? Um, So on something, and then it depends on where you are, about what sort of social supports. So what do we do to make sure that kids have meals? You know, so some places have school lunch programs. So it's incredibly variable about how much we do as a society, but certainly a whole lot of the social determinants of health, particularly the environment, is definitely done as a society. Mm
1: Mm-hmm, for sure. And a lot more emphasis on that these days, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
2: So... I mean, I've had friends who are living in, uh, you know, working in countries where they, they don't pay that attention, and they wanted to get out because they were afraid of what would happen to their kids given the air they had to breathe
1: yes definitely well and, and, and then that, that's definitely a movement happening um, worldwide but it, it does take time and and I think it's something that we pay a lot of attention to seems yeah yeah so, um, our Canadian healthcare care um, does stand out. It's a little bit different than um, I mean our neighbors in in the United States were a very large contrast with with them. Can you just explain how we're different from the American system and what makes us stand out?
2: Well, One of the the neat things, if you take a look at the United States, uh, they make every country look good. I mean, every time you say, (laughs) oh, there's some problems with our system, you then just look down at the U.S. and you say, oh, well, we're not nearly as bad as the U.S. The U.S. spends way more than any other country, much of it public. In fact, they spend as much as Canada does publicly, to have more people without coverage than the entire population of Canada, and worse outcomes. So... (laughs) (laughs) And part of the thing is this myth that it should be competition and private and that you do it that way. And, you know, I said that most of us are pretty healthy and most of the health costs are a small number of sick people. So if you have a competitive insurance market, the best way to make money is not to cover sick people. And then you can make a load of money uh, charging relatively healthy people. Uh, they don't need a lot of care. They don't use a lot of care. And then the sick people are on their own.
1: Which doesn't sound like we're addressing the society part of health.
4: Or the it, individual. They, they are
1: not addressing. Or the
2: individual it. part. I mean, um, yeah. I have a a friend who who was in in the States, was working for a a small tech startup company, and he had a child with a genetic disease. So they fired him so they wouldn't have to pay for the child's health care costs out of their health insurance.
1: Hmm. I didn't know that they could do that.
2: Oh, yeah. And what you start getting into is for... A lot of these uh, childhood genetic diseases, the life expectancy is way less in the United States than it is in Canada because the kids can't get coverage Mm, and they don't get the care they need. Yeah. Well, you know, we do,
1: we have our complaints in in Canada, but, you know, when when you look at um, situations like that, um, or you hear stories about people going bankrupt because they had cancer, um, you know, we we do, and, and I do think we take for granted the, what we have here, what we have offered to us that, you know, when you are sick, you can go to the doctor, even if you don't have money in the bank, and you can get help.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's certainly gaps, and there's certainly ways we can improve it. But, yeah, and the other thing that I think is important, we keep talking about Canada. Um, as you know, there's no, Canada does not have um, responsibility for health care, uh, because when the BNA Act was put together in 1867, there just wasn't a whole lot that was being done. So the BNA Act gave responsibility for health care to the provinces and territories. So the feds can provide some money, but the systems themselves are up to the provinces and territories to decide how they want to manage them. So you so, are going to get variability depending on where you happen to be.
1: Yeah, and and um, so how how does that vary province to province? Then, if, if I mean we all have socialized health care, but um, it. What does that look like across the board then, if it if it is regulated differently?
2: Well, it's not even regulated differently. What it is is it sets a minimum because what happened is that Canada initially started by uh, well, it was started with Saskatchewan saying that what we're going to do is we're going to start insuring hospital services. So the federal government got into the act to say, okay, if you want to set up a insurance plan, we'll pay some of the cost. And the the provinces all got in because they didn't see the point of saying, your money is going to go to help pay for insurance for people in Saskatchewan, but not for people in our province. So what happened is by 71 or so, every province had full coverage for hospital care and physician care because they started with the most expensive pieces. And then the model that they had, federal money only went for hospital care or physician care. So you had a randomized trial of nurse practitioners in Ontario, and they worked beautifully, but it didn't go anywhere because you would get no federal money unless the patient was seen by a doctor. So the, what they did is they changed the model and they said, okay, no, we'll give you some block money going into provincial general revenue, But then they had to put some rules saying, what do you need to do to get the money? So what the Canada Health Act, and it's been since 1984 or so, what the Canada Health Act says is, look, if you want federal money, you have to give full coverage with no co-pays for all physician services and hospital services. You can go beyond it, but you don't have to. So provinces vary a lot because let's say I'm in the hospital. My drugs have to be paid for. My rehab has to be paid for. The minute you send me home... You still have to pay for the doctor visits, but everything else you don't have to pay for. But it may be very penny-wise, pound-foolish not to. So some provinces will pay for your outpatient drugs, or some drugs, others won't. Some will pay for outpatient rehab, others won't. There's variability in what they'll pay for for home care or long-term care. So you're going to see a lot of difference, depending on where you are, about what sorts of things are or not picked up by the provincial plan and for who.
1: So, um, it, it, right now um, we do have this this full socialized system um, that looks that looks like that. It is a little bit different everywhere, and you know I do think that that. That's that it's that,
2: actually in the low end. About seventy yeah. percent of Canadian healthcare costs is paid for publicly.
1: Okay, and so how do how does that work?
2: Well, just that. Just about all the doctor costs and most of the hospital costs, except for things like capital and that, are paid for publicly. But there's a lot of variability in the rehab, the drugs, dental care is almost entirely private, vision care is almost entirely private. Mm
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So okay. it, it very much depends on what you're talking about. Mental health is a big problem because the coverage, mental health back in the day, the assumption was you would be in a provincial psychiatric hospital.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: That's Which not that? how it's done now. So again, mm-hmm. you've got a lot of variability in what sort of coverage you get for mental health.
1: Yes, because if you just want to see a counselor, you pay out of pocket for that most of the yeah. time. Yeah, which is difficult because most people are experiencing mental health issues at some point in their life and not everybody can afford the help that they need.
2: Exactly. So that there are, you know, in terms of pieces that I think we need to do something about, mental health is a big one.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, we're going to take a quick break. We're talking today with Reza deeper and she's a professor at the University of Toronto. We're discussing her book, um, Treating Healthcare, and we'll be back shortly.
5: Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Everything is energy. It's all
4: connected. Your energy can be seen as the foundation for your life and impacts all areas of living. Do you realize that your thoughts have the power to affect how you show up? Tune in for Healthy Energy with Margot, featuring host Margot Nielsen. Margot and her guests will show you that connecting to your energy is vital to your health, relationships, money, and more. Listen live every Monday at 12 noon Pacific time, 3 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Tune in Wednesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Women's Channel.
1: Hi everybody, welcome back. We're um, talking to Raza Deeper, and she's a professor at the University of Toronto. And we're discussing her book, Treating Healthcare. So, um, Raisa, one thing I want to talk about is actually the history of our our healthcare. Um, you know, I'm I'm from Saskatchewan, which is where this originated. So I. I I, well, I grew up mostly in Saskatchewan, but you know, we we always learned um, that this is where it started. Can you just tell us how we got to the point where we have this socialized system?
2: Yeah, well, be careful. It is not a socialized system. What it is is a single payer system with universal coverage. The if you make a distinction between how healthcare is financed and how healthcare is delivered. The people who deliver health care are not civil servants. Doctors do not work for the government. Someone working in a hospital is not like a public school teacher. Now, it's a little closer, actually, in Alberta than in many, because you did get rid of local hospital boards. In Ontario, we've still got local hospital boards, and you know, they're independent providers. They just okay. happen to be paid by one insurer. Okay, And what they realized in Saskatchewan is that you will save a mint. You can give better care for less money if you have a single payer. And it's better for just about everybody because if I'm a hospital, I don't have to have a whole bunch of people who can figure out, they say, okay, what's your insurer and know how to fill out their forms and do everything else. I mean, look at what poor dentists have to go through. in terms of trying to figure out what the coverage is and all of the different plans and all of the different rules. So if you look in the U.S., they have to spend an enormous amount of time and effort figuring out what the insurers. And then if you don't have insurance and they'll give care for you anyway, they end up with a bad debt. So what they realized in Saskatchewan is that if you gave everybody coverage... You wouldn't have a situation where the providers have bad debts. You would save a lot on your um, overhead costs, and you could get better results. And you wouldn't have people waiting until they had a heart attack before seeing the doctor, because if this was something where earlier care could make a difference, you could do that. So what Saskatchewan realized is a, a, a universal insurer with a single payer would make a lot of sense, and then the rest of the country followed along.
1: So, um, how long did that take us to to implement this?
2: Oh, I think it depends on what you're defining by implement, <laughs> and I'm not a great expert on the exact pieces of the history and how it, it went in. But um, and if you want, uh, Greg Marshallton has written some good stuff on that, and I can refer to to a lot of Greg's work. But certainly it sort of started in the 50s, and um, by 1971 we were pretty well there, although there's a whole lot of other little things that we really can and should change. Um, and wh- see, I'm, which, looking at, I'm looking in my book yeah. to try to see if I actually put, put in any of that And I've got a little bit about that in there, but yeah. Yeah. Anyway.
1: Um, So, when we're looking at, I mean, we compared ourselves to the United States, which I think, um, you know, everybody understands what their model is and and those issues, but how do we compare it to the rest of the
2: world? Well, the interesting thing to look at is the U.S. actually has some pieces of the system that is very much like Canada. They have what they call Medicare. They have what they call Medicaid, which is if you're over 65 or if you're poor, you are eligible. There is a single payer. And it's exactly the same thing. Individual providers will just bill the uh, single payer. So the U.S. does have a Canadian piece in it uh, for a certain chunk of the population. Okay. Yeah. But... um, There's a number of different models, and I think there's no one right model. Everybody's got pieces of it that work pretty well and work pretty badly. And in the book, I actually have some of the comparative OECD data. And one of the things that's important to recognize is that on some metrics, the results are pretty close to each other, and therefore pretty small changes in absolute numbers can make big differences in your absolute rank. Okay, Mm -hmm. Like, for example, uh, life expectancy at birth for males in 2014, the average from the OECD countries was 77.9, but the highest-scoring country was 81.3, and the lowest was 69.1. So Canada, which is above the average, at 79.4, ranked 14th, and Germany, which was 78.7, ranked 21st. Okay? Yeah. So, tiny changes in the numbers can make pretty big changes in some of the rankings. And that's the thing that's important to to recognize is when you're doing the comparisons, what are you comparing and what difference does it make to how people do? Mm-hmm. So, okay. I think we're pretty well in the midpoint. You know, there's some things we look better on, some things we look worse on, but there's no Chunks where it's we look really awful, and then one of the other differences are we talking urban areas or rural areas? Because if you're in the middle of a big city, it's easy to get specialized care, if you're in a more rural, remote area, you may have to travel a lot more to get specialized care. And then here's one of the Canadian complexities which is it's hard to do e health. And because you have to be licensed in each province you're giving care to. So if you tried to set up something in Calgary to deliver care to Northwest Territories, Manitoba, etc., every physician working there would have to be licensed to practice in each province territory that they were giving care to. Hmm. So, you know, again, because back when we set these rules up, around the world in 80 days was considered an achievement, yeah. So you know this assumption, this recognition that things can travel a lot faster becomes tricky. It's the same thing as the um, epidemics. The quarantine stops the minute you come into the country. So if you look at something like SARS, the minute somebody with SARS is in the country, they become a provincial territorial responsibility. So how do you stop spread of the epidemic? And we didn't have the mechanisms in place to do it very well because the assumption was it was all being done locally.
1: So, and, and that's obviously something that, I, I, I mean, you're right, when when travel was harder uh, is when this was set up.
6: Um, yeah.
1: And, and it's, it's a lot easier now. And, and, you know, people move around a lot more than they used to as well. And I know, you know, one issue is that you go even, um, it's not just when doctors go to another province, they can't practice. But when we go to another province, you know, it takes three months to get health care. And, and um, some people do feel a little trapped by that.
2: Well, it's not, it doesn't take... through. This is the portability requirement yeah. of the Canada Health Act, which is what do you do if if healthcare is a provincial thing and your plan is provincial? What do you do if you get sick in a different province? And so what they said is, look, for the first three months, you're the responsibility of your home province. And then after that, you're deemed to have moved, although you have to go through the paperwork and make sure you're registered where you moved to. So the idea was, if you're gone skiing in Whistler and you break your leg, who should have to pay for the care? Mm-hmm. Okay, um, but it becomes very problematic. What if I'm a student? So I'm, you know, I'm studying at Dalhousie, but I'm not from uh, Nova Scotia. Who's responsible for my care? How do you do it? What if I'm a foreign student? And so you get into all of these complexities. What if I'm an immigrant? So you don't have a home province. So that's what the three months was the minimum set. What Mm -hmm. if I'm living near Ottawa, but I'm on the Quebec side of the border, and my kid needs care from a children's hospital, but the children's hospital in Ottawa is Ontario, and if Quebec isn't willing to pay for that care, do I have to go down to Quebec City or Montreal every time my child needs care? So it becomes, Hmm. you know, it can be worked out, and a number of the provinces have done that. I mean, PEI has arrangements with Nova Scotia for a lot of the specialized care because they know they're not big enough to set it up. So how do you, what do you do? But it's up to the individual, it's almost on a disease-by-disease, you know, case-by-case, area-by-area basis about how they've set it up.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, I had a, a
1: friend that was going to um, move out of Alberta and they sold their house and the, um, the same month she got diagnosed with breast cancer and oh, boy, yeah. they had they had to stay in Alberta for her treatment and they had to rent somewhere and and wait until she was uh, clear and um, because if they had moved they would have had to wait for treatment so they were told to stay.
2: Well, you see, it would have depended. If they had treatment and Alberta agreed to pay, it would not have been a problem. Mm -hmm. So this would have been more of a how does Alberta link with the other provinces? What deals do they have? How do they do it? So it's not that it's not possible, but it's a whole bunch of individual province deals. So it would be a question of what the arrangement was that Alberta had with whatever province they were planning to move to.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds um like it can get complicated like in that case where you know they they had no home at that point as well. Um and so their plans had to change. Um you know, and it, it it's it's yeah. stories I've heard before. So it 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 seems
2: um something But it also would have been yeah. whether or not their doctors could get her properly referred in and seen. So if the if they could get if they had linkages With the local doctors and hospitals, they could get care more easily than if they were. So, where were they planning to move to?
1: Uh, To Manitoba.
2: Okay, so it would have been a question of what the availability was of the services in Manitoba that they needed.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Which, which, yeah, so as you're saying, can be complicated too if it's not available to you right where you are. Um, It does get a little tricky.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So this is, you know, what it is, is the care when you come right down to it is very much of a local thing of, you know, who are the clinicians? What is the condition? What do you need? What's available? Where? How do you do it? And that's not a government thing. So, Mm -hmm. so much of it comes down to, like, we've got a really good family doctor. So if, God forbid, we need some sort of care, um, they can help arrange it. But one yeah. of the reasons they can help arrange it is that the other clinicians know that this practice doesn't send you for things that you don't need it.
1: Yes, exactly. So um, when, when we're looking at, you know, this whole system, um, and, you know, we, we did mention that mental health doesn't get paid for unless you're in an institution. Um,
2: or being do you- seen by a
1: doctor yeah um how how do we decide um what does get paid for and what is in the scope of of this whole system?
2: yeah, and that's very much a thing that is decided by well, it sort of depends on how much you decentralize it. So with hospitals, if they have global budgets, the hospitals decide what it is that they're going to be doing because you don't have a thing that every time a nurse takes your vital funds, she you know she puts in a bill for that. Mm-hmm. So some of these are salaried and these are things that they do, whereas if you're on a fee schedule, the issue becomes what's on the fee schedule and what are you paid for. So it it's very much a thing about how is that organized, arranged, who makes decisions. So for certain things like drugs, you'll have some bodies that decide whether or not particular products are safe enough and effective enough to uh, to warrant being put on a formulary, and then is it does the hospital buy it, or is this does the province have a drug plan? Will the drug plan pay for it? So it's incredibly decentralized in a lot of these situations, particularly okay. if they're starting with a global budget.
1: Okay, um, we're going to take a quick break. We're talking today with Reza Deeper and we're discussing her book, Treating Healthcare. We'll be back shortly.
5: Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Everything is energy. It's all
4: connected. Your energy can be seen as the foundation for your life and impacts all areas of living. Do you realize that your thoughts have the power to affect How you show up? Tune in for Healthy Energy with Margo, featuring host Margo Nielsen. Margo and her guests will show you that connecting to your energy is vital to your health, relationships, money, and more. Listen live every Monday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Tune in Wednesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Women's Channel.
0: Hi everybody, welcome back.
1: Today we're talking with Reza Deeper. She's joining us from uh, the University of Toronto and we're discussing her book, Treating Healthcare, how the Canadian system works and how it could work better. So
2: Reza, how could our system work better? Well, I think one of the things is, I mean, there's a number of things that I had in the the book. Uh, One is to make people healthier and help them stay healthy. A second is to improve how we coordinate services and improve the quality. The third is change how we organize our system, including revisiting how we pay for care, including who pays for what and how we deliver it, which is, you know, the wait list access issue. And then the final one is get more efficient and get better value for money. So those were the four things that I suggested that might be helpful.
1: So, let's start with the first one. How can we get people healthier and stay there?
2: Well, there's all kinds of things, you know, making sure that... uh, Like when I was a kid, I never used to see homeless people. And now you see people sleeping on the street. I wouldn't think that's particularly good for them. Um, making sure that kids eat healthy food. Making sure that um, we, we have, you know, proper education. Making sure that you can walk around. I mean, there's some, not Toronto, but there's some communities that you visit where you cannot walk because it's just highways and you can't cross the streets and you can't go anywhere. Um, so there's... There's all these complicated things about what do we do about determinants of health and how do we help people manage, like if you've got diabetes, how do you make sure that you keep it under control? How about keeping your blood pressure under control? Uh, then there's the things about better integration so that you don't have a whole bunch of little silos uh, that somebody falls between the cracks in terms of trying to keep the care put together. Uh, then there's the um, and. and you know, if, if I'm out of a hospital, what do you do about covering those things and handling that? And then there's a wonderful model um, called Choosing Wisely, which is focusing on let's not do things that don't make sense. So to spend money on care that you don't need and it's not going to do you much good doesn't seem mm-hmm. like a particularly good use of anybody's uh, money. Mm -hmm. So how do you work out a model that you're taking care, you know, you're doing the things that make sense and you're not doing the things that don't make sense?
1: Yeah, but which which is tricky because not everybody like are you talking about a model for doctors to follow for doing tests or, or a bigger bigger model? Yeah, I mean model? this
2: is all, this is all being done by the doctors and they're coming up with a number of different approaches which say okay, these are uh, these are particular tests that are being overused. Let's stop overusing them. These are the situ- these are the times under which it does make sense to do it. These are the times where it doesn't. So you have a lot of effort to try to see what you can do to try to improve the quality of care. And as I said, this is being led by physicians, and I think they're doing a brilliant job with it.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And and, um, how can we improve services?
2: Well, I think it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all. Mm -hmm. There's going to be uh, a number of things where you can figure out how to do it more effectively. There's certain, like, it's never struck me as making a lot of sense to have somebody have a heart attack because they couldn't afford the medication to keep their blood pressure under control. Mm -hmm. And so... Another of the things is uh, what are we paying for things? Because it's not just what are you doing, it's what are you paying for it. So prescription drugs, if we have joint purchasing, could we get the costs down? If we have a lot more looking at what's the value added of particular drugs, because there's these incredibly expensive drugs, and some sort of scrutiny about when does it make sense, when doesn't it make sense.
3: Mm-hmm. So the, the,
2: it's it's not a one size fits all. There's a whole lot of little things, each of which could, and in the best case, you have a win win, which is you spend less money and you get better better outcomes. And and so. Um
1: what, what would that I mean there's probably a lot of things but what would this look like if there's just an example of improving services um, so would that be like on, on the the part of um, in hospitals or would that be the part of seeing your family doctor or is there a broader spectrum you're looking it's, at it's not an
2: or it's basically yeah. how do you make sure that the hospital works together with the family doctor works together with others and it's what are you talking about are you talking acute conditions are you talking chronic conditions are you talking about working with the caregivers to make sure that uh, people with chronic uh, conditions get the care that they need. So it's going to be very individualized to what's the sort of condition, what's the best practices right now, how do you do it in a way that's going to work.
3: And, you know,
2: which means it's never going to be over. You're not going to be able to say, okay, I've done this and now it's done because new treatments are always coming along, new things are always happening. Um, But it's making sure that people can work together. And the advantage that we've got is most of the clinicians I I know are very motivated by trying to make sure that people get the best care that they can. So since they're motivated by that, they're not going to give you a whole bunch of unnecessary visits simply because they get money for each one of them. You Mm -hmm. know, so... I'm. I'm not usually worried that somebody's going to try to give me open heart surgery I don't need simply because they're going to make a buck out of it. Mm-hmm. So we rely very heavily on the fact that most of the people in the, in the field are ethical and they're there because they want to help. But there's a whole lot of things that we could do to try to make it better. And in the ideal situation, you save money. The thing that you don't want to do is start going to private financing. Because all that happens in that is the costs go up and the um, equity goes down. It's a lose-lose.
1: Yeah, so that that's one thing that, that gets talked about. It, com- it comes and goes as, as an issue, and some people are an advocate for that. Um, and I, I think that might come from the long waits, you know, when you're in pain and you have to wait 6 to 12 months for an MRI or a specialist or, yeah. or whatever is going on. Um, and so some people do talk about having a private system so that you don't have to do that. Um, and so what, what would be the drawbacks to implementing something like that?
2: Okay, the big drawback is why would you pay unless you had a long wait and what you could get in the publicly paid system is worse? So every place that's tried to do this public-private tier has found that what you get in the public gets worse because otherwise there's no market for the private pay. So it's sort of a lose-lose. So if you're having to wait, figure out why and do something about the wait lists. Um, I know some people who are industrial engineers, and they've done wonderful work applying engineering techniques to see what they can do to uh, reduce wait lists. And in a number of cases, you do some efficiency. Like there was one hospital that was finding they had... Uh, they didn't have enough recovery rooms. And then they looked and said, oh, because you're starting all your surgeries at the same time. So they staggered the start time of the surgeries and they had enough recovery rooms. So... Mm -hmm. A certain amount of this just using engineering to look at how do we design. Our, same thing with wait lists. If you have a whole bunch of individual wait lists, then if one slot doesn't get filled, it's gone forever. Whereas if you have a unified wait list, then you're using all your t- time more efficiently. So there's a whole lot of things that you can do uh, rather than say, oh, you're going to have to wait 10 months. No. If you need it now, you should get it now. And let's figure out how come you're not and how to fix it.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, because that, that's still the case. Um, I don't know about Ontario, but in, in Alberta, people do wait an average of 6 to 12 months for a specialist, usually on the longer side. And even for, for testing that they need, like let's say they need an MRI, um, it, it will um, still take that long.
2: And okay, you yeah, have to be yeah. careful about how you measure that, because okay. I know somebody who had cataract surgery. And the initial visit they had said, you are going to need it, but you don't need it yet. And about four years later, it got to the point where, yeah, they needed it, and they had it quite quickly. But by the way we measure wait lists, they were on the mm-hmm. wait list for four years. Okay. Okay? So you have to be careful as to what the wait list means, because sometimes if you They put you on because you are going to need it, but you don't need it yet. Hip and knees, you don't want to do it too quickly because there's a limited lifespan to them, and the revisions don't do as well as the first one. So it's this trade-off. and most of the data that I've seen, the things which are really life and death thing, the wait lists have gotten way better and are doing quite well. Mm -hmm. So you have to be careful that you know how you're measuring them.
1: Well, which is fair. I I I understand that. I mean, you've got to delay, um, you know, surgery on your knees or whatever it is because they don't last. Um, and yeah. you'll have to do it again. So you wait until you are at that point where it's, um, you know, very necessary. Um, yeah. But at the same time, I know a lot of people feel like their quality of life is on hold because they're waiting for an MRI for an answer. And I have I know lots of people that will spend, I think it's seven or $800 for an MRI in Calgary um, because they don't want to wait and they want okay. the answer of what's going on.
2: And I think that in that case, what they should do is figure out how come you're having so much weight and how to fix it up.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely, I I think that needs to be addressed because if you're in pain, um, which is usually what people are doing there, your quality of life is on hold. You know, there's a lot of things you can't do and you don't know why. You're waiting to find out why, which is a very difficult situation to be in. You know, it can cause a lot of problems down the road just because of the emotional impact and being in pain for that long.
2: Yeah, and that's the thing of figuring out why that is happening that way and how do you work it out so people don't need to do that. And Mm -hmm. absolutely, but having the private tier only for the people who are willing to pay is, in my view, not the way to go. What is is the way to go is to figure out what's going on, why, and how do you fix it.
3: Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, because it's, it's hard, like, um, just, you know, go, going back to that, a lot, a lot of people will look at, you know, in the States, well, they, although they're paying, um, they don't have to wait. Um, and, you know, you can see a specialist and you can get a, a second opinion and you're not waiting six months in between um, yeah, to see Yeah, but that's people. because
2: the people who can't pay, are yeah. not getting it at all.
1: <laughs> yeah, which is also difficult because okay. we don't want that either.
2: Um, yeah, you know, it, we want everybody to be included. Yeah, and there's no yeah. market for paying unless you're making people wait. Mm-hmm. Well, and, so, and, and... Yeah. Yeah, so that's the reason why most of the people who looked at it said this is a really bad idea because you the, the wait lists get worse. In order that some people are willing to pay to jump the line. Yeah. And well, you I'd did... rather make sure that two things, I don't want to be in a line I don't need to be in. Mm-hmm. Okay, if I don't need that image, I don't want to get it. And yeah. if I do need it, I want to get it in a way that I need. That So, Yeah.
1: Yeah, well, you pointed out in your book that it, it isn't um, saving the system. Some people think, oh, well, then we'll have lesser weights in hospitals. But what you're doing is redistributing the money because people yeah. are leaving the system, but then the payment isn't there for what they're doing. So there's less money for other people who are utilizing the system, um, which still puts us in the same situation and yeah. may and make total, it worse. Yeah.
2: And your total uh, costs are, are higher, not lower. And Mm -hmm. so let's say I'm a company that is paying um, for people's uh, insurance for my uh, workers. It costs them a mint if you do it this way.
3: Mm -hmm. So
2: what you're doing is you're putting a burden on employers and making us less competitive economically.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, So the 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 fourth point is how to make things more efficient, which would solve the the wait list. So how can we do that?
2: Oh, the, I mean, there's all kinds of ways to do that. You know, the single queue, the looking and seeing. Okay, what services do you need? Which services do you not need? Um, you know, there's. Uh, a whole bunch of ways that it can be done and they're actually doing a pretty good job of it from what I can see. The wait lists are now much less than they were and they seem to be quite successful in a lot of this.
3: hmm
2: So, um, yeah, I think, you know, what you have to figure out is what do people need and how do you do it in a way that you get the care that you need when you need it of high quality. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can't give you a one-size-fits-all answer because it's going to very much depend on what sort of service you're talking about, who's getting it, when, where, why. Mm
3: -hmm. But, like,
2: I don't don't want services I don't need. There's no particular advantage to me out of having uh, surgery that I don't need.
1: Um, Yeah, definitely agreed. So, (laughs) I, I mean... Do you have any um, last comments for for this topic before we
2: end our show? Oh, yeah, and and tell people that my book is something that absolutely, yeah, they want to read. Okay, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, of course. So
1: um, how can people get a hold of you or your book if they have more questions?
2: Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I think it's available on Amazon. It's, it's University of Toronto Press. Uh, you can also ask your local library if they want to get a, uh, a copy, because certainly the library here has some. And, okay. um, yeah, but it, it should be relatively <laughs> easy to get a copy, and we tried to keep it cheap
3: mm-hmm.
2: because uh, we wanted people to be able to afford it.
1: Yeah, and so it not, was... not a super it,
2: expensive book.
1: No, and it was an easy read, which I think is important because this is a topic that I think everybody in Canada should understand. and and when when it's not easy to read and we're using all this terminology, it's it's harder for people to understand what the issues are and how they they can work to address it or um, you know talk about it with people. Yeah. Well, it's one
2: of the advantages is I had a number of friends of mine who are very smart people but are not in the field read it to try to pick up where was I using jargon that people just wouldn't know what the jargon was. So uh, they were incredibly useful to me in pointing out examples of where I was using terms that to me were obvious, but they weren't obvious to people who were not in the field.
1: Right. Which is important if we're trying to reach everybody. So thank you for doing that. I think, um, you know, this is an important topic and and something that we'll probably always be talking about because how could we not want to make it better all the time, especially when it is life or death in a lot of situations. So, um, you know, thank you for joining me today and um, sharing this information. I appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome um today we were talking with Reza Dieber. she was joining us from the University of Toronto and we were discussing her book treating Healthcare: how the Canadian health system works and how it could work better and um, if you want more information about my story about what I went through in my health journey you can see that on my blog site at dr-risk.com don't forget to follow me on Twitter Facebook or Instagram and thank you so much for listening today be sure to make today a great day